Hello and welcome to another episode of the Adjuncts Lounge. Uh, we're continuing the discussion on the Russian way of war and I'm joined by Dr. Philip uh, Blood. Good afternoon, Dr. Blood. Hello, Ben. And uh, as, a, as a guest, who has, we, we've dragged him out of his, um, his, his comfort zone, well, his comfortable area and down in parts south. And we have returning with us OC Royal Horse Engineers, Neil Pointer. Neil. Hi, good morning or good afternoon, wherever we are and whoever you are listening. Um, so on, on the reason why we're carrying on this discussion is that uh, Phil and mine and Mars um, podcast did it exceptionally well. So if you listen to that and shared it, thank you so, so much. Um, it certainly picked up a lot of interest from various quarters and we've seen elements reappear. Um, so I thought to myself, well, let's carry on the discussion. Um, and Neil is joining us because he's bringing you a fresh set of eyes with a couple of interesting ways of looking at the current situation. Um, nobody has, the, we, we certainly don't have the full intelligence picture, but what we do have is reasonably good uh, information furnished to us from various places and from, from kind contacts. Um, so we, we're going to be looking at where they're at now. Uh, and this, when I say they, it's the Russians because they, uh, they're not slowed down, but they're starting to, it looks like they're starting to form a bit of a plan, doesn't it? Chaps, are you there? <laughs> you, you caught me a bit by surprise. <laughs> I was having a sleep. <laughs> I, I was, I was picking a Russian soldier on the back of a BTR having a sleep. Uh, we've looked at a map. Should I tell people we have looked at a yeah. map? Yes, yes. A Russian invasion of Ukraine map dated the 15th of March uh, 2022. The map is um, being issued by, I think it's called Military Land, who are a um, on Twitter. Um, they're producing good maps of our our great supplier of maps, Jomini, has had to shut down for security purposes, given his difficult circumstances in the Ukraine. So there we are. And he was he was looking at this map. Um, we, we've we've had a sort of the usual uh, preamble discussion beforehand. Um, and Neil, you made a really good observation. This has been missed by a lot of people. Is this the one about the bridges and the squeeze? Yeah. 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 So if I'm looking at this, um, at the map, and if you look at uh, about two weeks ago, I sort of got um, Apple Maps out and sort of zoomed in and went all the way up the line of the Dnieper. And it's really interesting. So if you look in, in the south around Kherson, there's only two bridges there. And then you have to go all the way up to Nikopol, which is about 100, 150 miles, I think, before there's the next crossing point. And between the south, uh, around Nikopol and up to Kiev, there's, with the exception of the city of Dnieper itself, where I think there were three or four bridges, all sort of within the city limits, there's only about three or four crossing points with actually a bridge in existence. Now, if the Russian forces continue the squeeze from the south, 
what you're going to do is there's a decision point for the Ukrainian forces. And it's an emotional decision, but this is where military decision makers have to be really clinical. Because where's your withdrawal route to the west of the Dnieper? Where, where, at what point do you say we have to give up the defence of eastern Ukraine because otherwise we're going to get cut off? Um, we're just and we're just going to lose presumably quite a large amount of their armoured forces. Now I don't know the full deployments, but that's a really key decision at some point. Um, and, you know, then to blow the bridges across the Dnieper. And, you know, do, you, do we have do the Ukrainians have to sacrifice East, East Ukraine at some point? The problem when you blow the bridges is you create um, almost unheard of economic misery to the eastern sectors of the Ukraine. You, you pretty much effectively do what the German army did in 1943 as it was running away. Um, it, it holds up the Russians, but for how long? Um, probably not very long, uh, especially with today's capabilities. Um, but while he's doing that, while you're getting the troops across the Dnieper, um, they also have to cope with the problem of what's happening in the south. Yep. that developing attack in the south. Um, my concern is your your argument where the where the river goes from being an obstacle to the Russians to then changing into a wall which prevents the Ukrainians from escaping. Uh, absolutely. And that's always the challenge with a major obstacle. You know, it works both ways. That's right. And it's it's making the call as to when you have to do that uh, and when you have to use it in that way. Um, you know, any withdrawal, there, there's that challenge of when do you fire the demolition um, to stop someone seizing it and being able to bounce over. Um, you know, that that looking at the Dnieper, it is one hell of an obstacle. It's interesting that the Russians haven't hit the bridges. Well, no, that's one of the one of the things I thought early on was that might have been an indicator that they just wanted the east was to blow the bridges as they went uh, and to seal it off, which they haven't done in the south. You know, they haven't done around Kherson. Oh, excuse the pronunciations. Um, those there's only two bridges down in that area. One of them is actually a dam, um, which would be incredibly difficult to blow anyway. God, it would take forever um, to, de to deny it as a crossing point. Um, but they haven't, and they've actually used it in this thrust that I think, Phil, you're going to talk about in terms of the one that's going up to the north from Mikolaev. Well, um, yeah, <clears throat> but I think we should just add a bit more to you, what you're you're saying there because you were also talking about how difficult it is to um, break out of a position where you are to then fight a defense uh, unless I'm overthinking it. Well, 
sorry the morale issue you were talking about. oh yes yeah i mean this is the uh, i could wax long and lyrical about this one it's there's a real challenge if you are the defender fighting in essence a battle for your survival of your country where you know you hold the moral high ground you know you you know your war is just your morale your the motivation factor to win is huge. If I'm a Russian conscript or not, not, not even a conscript, but a junior soldier, and if the stories we're hearing are correct, that up until 24 hours before the invasion, they were being told they were on exercise. Then they're told they are rescuing their Ukrainian brothers and sisters from a Nazi regime. Then they discover that's patently not true. Why am I going to debus out of my BTR or my BMP and attack a highly motivated enemy, um, a highly motivated defender? Because that morale factor is a real force multiplier for a defender my determination to hold ground, to attack and seize ground and to engage it. Because I, as the attacker, I've got to actually close with and fight the enemy physically. I've got to make that ground from where I am into their trenches, into their building that they've occupied as a strong point. I've got to overcome the obstacles. If that morale isn't very high, if that motivation to do that isn't very high it's a real challenge to get people to do that you know are you talking about having and i'm going right back into soviet um, actions you know the um nkvd battalions behind them at gunpoint what, what it's a really difficult one to see um and that I think is going to be a factor or could be, it could be a factor. I'll say. I don't think there's much doubt that the Ukrainians are fighting as one would expect, because when you're defending your own country and yeah. you're, you're on your own ground and you're familiar, you have to a certain extent a great number of benefits, but you also have the, the spirit of. Yeah. Absolutely. Which we saw in, you know, it's all through history, like Warsaw 1944 and things. The, the problem is there's surely a point, um, and I'm only guessing this, there's surely a point where soldiers start to degrade um, because they're not getting, I don't know, rations, they're not getting a break, they're not getting sleep. Uh, and and at, at some point that eats into the spirit of the soldier. A absolutely. But I wonder what that's doing on both sides. If if the Russian soldiers are feeling they haven't, they're not fighting a just war. And they're seeing that plan A didn't work. And if their logistics are, as we're hearing, not working, we're seeing all these reports of trucks having to be brought forwards. Uh, civilian trucks, if they're seeing that their system isn't working for them, that could be working both ways. I understand. You know, but if they can step back, yeah, pounding after pounding of pounding with um, yeah. 
with heavy artillery, with yeah. air cover, with yeah. caliber missiles, with the whole the whole kit and caboodle, and it's dismantling your conurbations, your municipalities, like yeah. dissolving whole areas, turning it into a Grozny type wasteland. What I, that strikes me that the defenders, what's he defending? He's only defending the ground he's standing on. Well. Uh, okay, reference point Stalingrad. You know, if there's enough motivation to fight for that ground and to hold it, you know, um, it, very interesting that, you know, there's a ratio in uh, operations in built up area. One defender is worth, I think it's between five and 10 attackers. Yeah, I, I, I mean, obviously, with. The work I did with the SS and the destruction mm. of Warsaw. Um, the, the answer to that ratio is a flamethrower. Um, and that's it. It's as simple as that. It's really ugly. Oh. If, if, if five guys sit in a bunker and hold that, you sneak up with a flamethrower and you literally dissolve them. Um, the, the, the Germans, I mean, if there was a unit that was causing them a trouble on a corner. I mean, they would flatten the corner with so much high explosive that, you know, the, the, the dust was just firing up and down because that, that's what they'd done to it. And you, you only have to see what areas of Warsaw, um, how much rubble is actually buried into the ground, you know, when, the, when yeah. they do pipe work, you only have to look down. I mean, the, the, the sheer scale of rubble in the ground, you, you know what they've done to the city. It's the same here in Arkham when, when you're looking at construction work here. What I think is happening with places like uh, Kiev and Kiev and, and, and these areas is that they're doing what they did in Aleppo and Grozny. Yeah. And I understand you, you're suggesting that when they stand there and fight um, as defenders, they have the benefit and the, that works against the, the Russians. But I'm wondering whether the Russians have other thing, which is as the bombardments are going in, um, they're pretty much getting a, a, a different kind of confidence. So as the Ukrainians have held them off all day, yep. shell after shell after shell landing on their positions, they go next day and there's not much resistance. That might give them a little bit more confidence. Uh, I, I, and I, just one point on your, on the, Stalingrad thing. The, the thing about Stalingrad was, although it looked like it was closed for a long time to the Russians, it wasn't, and you could get across the river. Um, yes. And um, the German army isn't the, I mean, what is it? It's not the Ukrainian army now, and it's not the Russian army then. It, it, the German army is what it was then, and it wasn't really built for the kind of battle yeah, it's taking place now. So I understand the Stalingrad analogy to a certain extent, but w when you deconstruct it, it kind of breaks up. My, I, my view is, but your opinions are correct if you use Warsaw up to the point where the heavy engineers come into Warsaw and start destroying the defenders in situ. And I think then you come into, and uh, this is an interesting line, you know, perhaps going outside what we said earlier. Is there a line that even 
Putin knows he can't cross in the measures he uses without the West going, uh-uh, sorry, you've just crossed a line. You know, if we see something of the scale, of, of that sort of scale of operation, is there a moral line for the West that we go, uh-uh, too far, that that's not legitimate warfare anymore? You know, you you are now do you are now so out of kilter that we have to act. And, and by the way, so, let me just agree with you. Where we've got a besieged city, I think like Mariupol, which is which is surrounded. You know, I am in agreement. There is a point at which you go. Thank you very much. Let's see if we can exfiltrate as many of the soldiers as we can through the lines. Do it. Try and do a breakout. And otherwise we surrender. If I can still get stores in like at Kiev or any, at some of the other built up areas, I mean, Kharkiv, from what I understand, you know, they're talking about areas being retaken from what I hear. Now, if I can still get stores in there, if I can still replant, if I can do relief in place on some of those soldiers and get them out, give them a break, recycle, you know, put others in, you know, Obvious um, becomes a you know it, it becomes a real preference for a defender. If I, if I can do relief in place and still get stores in, right. But at which point you say this isn't worth fighting for if he's landing so many caliber missiles into the place? I mean, I, I, it, I, I, it's I, mean, I, I look at this. It, some of the streets now look as bad as any sites that I've seen in in my time and hmm. the, the only place where I haven't seen total comparison is with Aleppo and Grozny but we are very close yeah and, and and I'm of the opinion he does want to flatten something as a punishment I, I think you're, you're interested right there um, <clears throat> I think in terms of it, he is looking to make a statement move and the use of the indiscriminate use of caliber, the caliber system, again, sort of the, the you know along the, the southern coast there of, of the country has has definitely shown that's the case. Um, what helps the, the 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 Ukrainians in a lot of ways is that caliber has a very very short range. It's not a huge range, um, and at the moment it's purely being used by the Black Sea Fleet. Um, I believe the the mounts to the the airborne assets, the TU one two four, they're not complete. Uh, I think the the the, air, the ground launch system would be just too vulnerable um, because the Ukrainians have shown that their their airborne in, in intelligence gathering via drone is actually very good, and they're able to isolate uh, and spot uh, certain launching systems. What I find interesting is that we had that initial burst, didn't we, where he used um, thermobarics now, on a couple of occasions the thing is the thermobarics as devastating as they are the weapon system that he's using isn't the most uh, reliable and it is not if not so he, I, I think i think the way you know it's expensive as well um so i, I don't think they've they've reeled out the big guns on that and i'm i can't help but think bearing in mind what you've just said phil um is it is he waiting to use thermobarics as a as a statement uh, weapon 
of terror um, uh, on one hand and on the other does he know that when he used them and rightly so the international community really sat up and the feedback he got was no you really cannot do that you know and people were genuinely shocked to see its use yeah, in Aleppo they they tipped dustbins out of helicopters some of them had these dustbin bombs and some of them were just complete dustbins for the chlorine um, nobody said anything well the world did but nobody listened uh, you know, United Nations didn't ever listen. Um, it, it, it strikes me. I doubt we, we've got a lot of ugly going on, but I haven't seen him touch the levels of escalation, which would take it to the point where we'd be revolted. I know this this weapon system that you're talking about caused a stir, but did it really cause a stir? You know enough to get the United Nations to say no, no, no. It, it it strikes me if you look at if if you look at as these weapons are going on, as these discussions are going on, it's very interesting that at all levels people are finding excuses for not mm. conf confronting him on on even on the okay they'll say yeah well that's not good that's bad and blah but. What kind of message is it when the chief of NATO is saying we're not going to commit troops? I'll tell you what that message is to Putin. Well, good. Back off. Bye. This is my land. Yeah, it, it's really interesting because, uh, I mean, there's been a few British politicians. You know, um, um, Tobias Elwes has been saying, where's our experience of Cold War diplomacy and being able to face off the bully? And actually, you know, you've got to have the courage to stand up to the to the class, to the playground bully. And if you just say, no, 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 naughty boy, don't naughty boy, but we're not going to do anything. He's just going to carry on. It's, it's an odd situation, isn't it? Biden saying, I mean, if you look at the way the process was, if you look at the way the process was with Iraq, they couldn't get him fast enough. You know? Yeah. But in this game, it's, oh, no, we're not getting involved. We don't want this. And yet everything that the, the NATO and the US forces were created for was just this kind of situation. And I, I just find it very odd. Um, well, I, I think, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I was kind of reflecting on this. I mean, there was this, I don't know if you've seen, you know, just on a slightly lighter note, there was a wonderful meme that was published sometimes towards the beginning of last week where it's got, um, OK, Germany here. So just um, just to be clear, so you want us to rearm with a really big army, be mm -hmm. prepared to march through Poland and fight the Russians. I'm just taking notes so there's no confusion later. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. It, you know, ha having lived and served in Germany and, you know, literally been based in what they called the Soldatenstadt in Munsterlager, um, you know, and that was the German armor school. And so, you know, it, a, a normal morning was to be woken by the sound of Leopard 2s going around the ring road. Um, you know, they will do it. They 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 will rearm. I've got no doubts about it, and it probably doesn't take a lot of persuading. Um, you know, they they are. Um, you know, I don't think I'd be going beyond 
it to say they are a, a martial race. Um, more so than the British, we don't like people getting uppity, <laughs> but we're not as overtly martial as perhaps the Germans are. Um, but we're going to have to get involved. We're going to have, you know, if we don't, if, if something doesn't happen with Putin now, we are going to end up in an old fashioned face off. But just the the Iron Curtain has moved approximately, I don't know, 400 miles to the east um, from the old inner German border. I, You know, we, we, we he can't be allowed to do this again. Well, the, the problem we have here, if we go back to Cold War analogy, is we don't have buffer lines between states. We don't have the Iron Curtain, we don't have a Cold War um, kind of buffer area where people were looking over walls at each other uh, and clearly stating thou shalt not cross. What we have here are flat borders and if, I've said all along, if Russian tanks suddenly the Polish border we've got a real problem because you only need one aircraft to come within Absolutely. millimeters of um, a ground radar system and we're in you know we're into a shooting situation um, if he keeps going towards Romania what's going to happen in 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 the Romanian area if you know the the trigger systems between Romania and Russian forces I mean that that oh, I, I obviously I don't want to go too far with that because it goes into the realms of some kind of fantasy, which is quite ugly. But it strikes me that what we're aiming for, yes, we've got no Cold War negotiators because nobody knows how to negotiate with nuclear weapons anymore because people in the West assumed they were extinct. Yeah. And nobody bothered with that anymore because it was all over. In any case, we went to a war and we found none. Um, you know, we looked all over Iraq, we looked all over Afghanistan and there wasn't any. So we just assume that that that's all over. We forget, and I think it comes from what um, Americans were saying back in the day, that the Russians no longer counted and were somewhat yes. uh, ignored on the battle stage. I mean, I remember uh, one conversation where they said they no longer counted while they were, you know, um, outmaneuvering Georgia, which was a great ally or significant ally of the United States. And then we got, uh, you know, the, the end in Afghanistan and, and what have you. And all of, during all of this period, Germany has been, well, appeared to be under Merkel, um, abandoning defence to everybody else. Um, yeah. If you talk to people who were in the field, who were German service people, or academics, what have you, the attitude was somewhat different. We need a force. We need to build it up. But the, the German armed forces were sadly led by some complete idiots. I mean, I don't know if you realize that van der Leyen um, was doing all kinds of things to the German military, which wasn't good. And it became a joke within German society. And, and, and you know, locals where I live, they say, fancy being a nation which has defense ministers who are women. <laughs> And I'm, I just find, you know, you just find it odd because having gone from being a defence reluctant society, we've gone to this other, it's like the, 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 
what do you call it? The low, the, the genie's the out gauge, of the bottle. The gauge has gone from zero yeah. to to a thousand miles an hour in 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 seconds. And we bought the Germans have bought the F thirty five last forty eight hours, which you know we've had discussions about. Um, there's all this weaponry, but the thing is, and, and I think a lot of people forgot about the Germans, and this is where I think they did have an advantage, was they had conscription up until only a, maybe a decade ago. Yeah. And that left a lasting legacy of service to the state, which yeah. was in the mindset of a significant element of German society. I think when she got rid of that, that was a bad thing because the Bundeswehr did a lot of good for German society and nobody really acknowledged it. Yeah, certainly done a lot of good in Yugoslavia. Uh, and now they're having to face this situation. But I mean, what what a bizarre, si you know, everybody's saying to me, oh, I don't know what I'm talking about because I keep taking, poking things at um, NATO. But the experts that I speak to are all telling me NATO is in chaos. You've got some lot who want to have a no-fly zone. You've got some people who do. You've got Germans who want to defend the frontier. I, then I listen to sort of former colonels, generals in the US who are saying, well, you know, nobody here wants to fight a war because we've had that and we're not doing it again. And it's all, I mean, wow, isn't it confusing? You, yeah. You, it, 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 what, what is interesting, um, and, and it, it's something that I, we've, we've, I'm sure we've spoken about, albeit briefly before, Phil, um, regarding the West's stance on what's happening in the Ukraine, is that in, in the mainstream, no one seems to be discussing our obligation under the Budapest memorandum. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it seems to be completely forgotten because it was signed in 1994 when we were all quite chummy. In it and, and it's almost as if that, you know, the the, the obligation um, to ensure Ukrainian national uh, and territorial integrity seems to be forgotten for that. You know, they, people forget they got rid. They were the third world's, for a very short period of time, they're the world's third largest nuclear power. Yeah. You know, they, could, they, they could have kept all of that quite happily. They really could have done. They would have had every, you know, and, and every reason to in some respects. But no, they decided to get rid of it. They didn't want it. Um, well, there is that other discussion as well. I mean, the minutes now are open for anybody to read, but Baker and Gorbachev had that conversation that NATO wouldn't go beyond Germany. But, but, but it is, this would not be a NATO intervention, though, would it, you see? It would be purely British and American. Yeah. Yes, I agree. All I'm saying is, with all this information, nobody really wants to talk about those past agreements and past um, precedents that we weren't going to do this, we weren't going to do that, and now suddenly we are. And and all, I, all I'm suggesting to you is an awful lot of stuff has been forgotten. Yeah, no, you're right, sorry. Um, and this sort of brings us on, doesn't it, in a way to what point to do, where do we draw the line? Um, there was there was this sort of discussion about salami slicing, the Russian salami slicing. Um, yeah. In, in, in sort of the discussion before we, we started. Yeah, I mean, that was me saying, you know, was he just going to take Donetsk and, sorry, what's the other region? Um, the two regions that... Donbass. Donbass, yeah. Yeah, the Donbass and Donetsk. You know, what was it, what was he after? You know, was it 
that he really just wanted a barrier between Russia and NATO. So he could have just taken the east of Ukraine, had a big obstacle and perhaps, you know, he's got a region there. He's got a, a, a tripwire, right? Was it literally, and now clearly it's not, because otherwise he'd have stopped, those two regions to liberate, or in inverted commas, or is he looking to take whatever he can? You know, is it this salami slice? OK, I'll take a bit, see how you react. I'll take a bit more and see how you react. Now, if he gets the whole of Ukraine and we still haven't reacted, OK, we've got to be really clear that that, that NATO line is a line. You know, because otherwise, um, would I want to be in one of those battle groups up in the Baltic states at the moment? No. Now, there's no strategic depth up there. There's no manoeuvre room, really, for the, for the sake of argument. What, what do we do when suddenly all the forces that were in Ukraine are shipped north? It, it, it becomes a really interesting area. We know, what are we into here? Well, I mean, you, will he move the forces south to north in that case? Has he committed all of his reserves? Do we know how many tanks he's got? I mean, I've got one guy telling me that there's still 25,000 tanks that haven't been committed. Um, yeah, I've got a feeling most of those are T-55s in, you know, in not a great state of repair, but... Yeah. I, I don't actually want to face a T-55 with my pencil. Um, no. Um, <laughs> Uh, or, 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 or my Luger. Uh, at which point do I confront that tank with something decent? That that that's my point. I mean, you, right? Yeah. Twenty-five thousand tanks suddenly descend on you. Doesn't matter how much stuff you've got. Uh, uh, so I can't get my head around that. Uh, so let's not just go down that far. But it's just it. People have these ideas and notions of what's going on, and we don't seem to. We don't seem to to know the full picture. It's like the whole story with the railways. And, you know, I know just by research and work that you can bungle a whole load of railway stock through a railway line very quickly. And you can literally move the whole of your, your military forces in a strategic manoeuvre within days. You, if you don't rip up the railway lines, the railway lines can kill you. Um, and that's that concerns me with the with the Ukrainian army is that they haven't tried to sabotage the the, the, the railways and that Russian armored train was able to move freely and I thought what on earth is that what's going on down there there's supposed to be heavy fighting and there's trains moving if they can move that train they can move twenty five thousand tanks that's my point yeah. It, it is interesting, you know, Phil, going back to, you know, and, and about this point about getting reserves because they are bringing reserves from, from, from the east of the country. And I'm sure I saw somewhere today that they were now starting to lager them at Volgorod, um, which is looking at a map, is almost a direct line between there um, and Donetsk. Which is worrisome, you know, especially when you were talking earlier, sort of about the rapidity of how quickly Russian trains can be loaded. It's it's a concern. 
Well, you can you can pretty much probably within an hour if you do it the usual way. You can load up a train. Um, really, the most significant thing you need is a ramp and a few planks, and then literally the vehicles run across, and then you chain them up, and then away you go merrily. Um, obviously, you have to be careful about gauges and all the rest of it. But I would have thought, given the speed, I mean, the thing that got me about the armoured train was there was no outriders along the sides protecting it. It it felt completely safe and secure in its manoeuvre. And <laughs> I mean, we were looking at, I think we were looking at Gherkin Gherkin's um, soldiers yeah. and trying yeah. to understand what that message was that we were watching as the yeah. somebody filmed that line. None of the evidence that we're getting is giving us an accurate picture. And in all of this, we're having to make value judgments and assessments on information which is a bit unreliable. Yeah. It, it's just occurred to me, you know, the, the other thing that, that that video we were watching, that indicates no air threat. No. You know, or they're not aware of one. Let's let's put it that way. They're certainly not dispersed thinking they might come under attack from the air or actually from anywhere. You know, that was an administrative move with no air threat. Which I mean, that's interesting because does that show that absolutely no one has any control of the air? You know, what what is going on in the air war? Well, the troop NCOs don't know what they're doing. Yeah, well, exactly. That's the that's the other. I mean, that that's the other line to this is, you know, what is happening at the junior leadership area? We we, we were talking, you know, what is it? They've lost four two star generals now uh, yeah. in the front line. OK, what the hell is a two star general doing that close? OK, there's what one is one. OK, maybe the Ukraine forces um, found a headquarters and hit it with uh, their drone. Great, well played. Four, four two-star headquarters hit? No, that sounds, that, well, either their electronic concealment is rubbish, um, or those two stars are having to go too close to the front line to make things happen. You know, is there a leadership? What's the leadership situation at the junior level at the front line in the Russian army? I thought of something flippant, but maybe it's not appropriate. OK, a GPS system in the naughty house. So they went for a quick drink and a few babies. <laughs> There's a GPS there picking them up. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, strange things have happened in war. I, I mean, it struck me that all these captured vehicles that the Ukrainians were keeping. I would be very cautious that they didn't have some GPS signal in them that the Russians could say, hey, hang on, they've taken that one, wait until it's in the car park and then we'll take it out. Um, the, 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 the whole thing's very odd to me. I, I don't mind admitting. Um, I, I, but then again, would I trade, I might trade one T, T-72 Bravo for a, a grid reference. I'm not sure I'd trade the numbers that perhaps we see. And some of those missile systems that we're seeing being captured, the air, uh, ground to air systems, which are hellishly expensive. 
Um, I, I, it's, I it's bizarre. It. it is bizarre. I mean, just just so you understand, listener, you know we, we're talking about the cost of, cost of these systems. The average um, cost for these self-propelled systems is twenty million dollars. Okay, that's what's being towed away by a tractor worth the equivalent of fifteen grand, brand new. Yeah. Yes, return on your investment. <laughs> I mean, if you look at pig films, the Russians had terrible trouble in previous wars with mud. The, the, yeah. you know, anybody who tells me that the Red Army didn't have a problem with mud is fooling themselves because they always had problems with mud. What they did have was the means at times to overcome mud with kind of strange things. Well, one thing that they did use was on the gaps where it wasn't so muddy, they'd send in cavalry, which, you know, confused the hell out of the Germans when it first happened. Um, but this mud isn't going to last. And then what happens? Um, to me, the 22nd of June is still a an unpleasant day hovering there. Is that the day when he wants to end the war? So that's the timetable, or is that something else? Marching in the streets of Red Square. I I I think we get to that point now where look, looking at the maps and it's and like Neil, I've sort of and well, I think like all of us as we as we're discussing it, you 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 process things that you've already looked at, and looking at the map um, shared with us today, the one thing that's sort of striking me, apart from the small temporary footprint that he's got just north uh, east of Odessa against Moldo the Moldovan coast, uh, sorry, border there, there hasn't doesn't seem to be a great amount of movement. I mean, he he's he, what he is doing, I notice down in the Crimea and the Nets, he is consolidating holds. So as before, areas were in dispute and are definitely in Russian hands. But there doesn't seem to be an awful lot of movement right now. And I'm finding that really quite peculiar. There doesn't, from Russia, there doesn't seem to be an awful lot going on over the past 72 hours, certainly less since we've last spoken. Um, and it makes me wonder what he's up to. Oh, 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 it has he got to the point where he's overstretched himself in terms of metamaterial, or have we got to the point where, as has been said previously, he's doing reconnaissance in force uh, in certain areas, and he's decided, oh, we'll leave that for the time being. Is he using the south as a springboard to drive upwards towards Uman, uh, and using that as a pivotal point for north, south, east, and west? It does strike me as very odd that. Things have almost sort of settled down to a not glacially, but almost quite quite a laissez-faire attitude. And this is reflected in that video that we saw uh, of the BTRs and the BMPs, just and, and the guys milling around as if they were let, let me put a proposal to you, to the pair of you. Um, it's just a, a thought. Nothing. Let's say the ground hardens. Yeah. And he's got an army which is on the Belarus border targeting Lutsk, okay? He's got another army at Kharkiv aiming towards Kremenchuk. Yep. And then he has another army in the south going from Kyrgyzstan up to Uman to Venetia. If the, if the weather suddenly hardened and those three things happened, we'd all turn around and say, we're back to the Red Army days, wouldn't we? 
we would if I'd seen some form of adventure to go off road up until now or to maneuver. But no. if it's hard, if the ground hard, I'm saying if the ground hardens, yeah, and three large formations suddenly appear, oh. yep, the whole the whole game changes, doesn't it? Yes, potentially. And then Ukraine's in a very very serious position. If that if that force breaks out from Mikolaev in the south, uh, and that's the one that would worry me. If I was if I was the Ukraine commander or one on their staff at the moment, I'd be looking at that force at Mikolaev and going, "How strong's that? What's happening in that? Because that, in effect, is a bridgehead." Yes. Um, what's going to happen there? If that, you know, we, we've said, "Oh, they're going to," you know, everyone's saying, "Oh, they're going to go for Odessa." Well, do that. Well, if they go north, <laughs> they get Odessa. That's right. You know. Um, if they go north and sever, uh, what is it? Uh, um, sorry, my, you know, pronunciation here. Either, either Venezia or Kropnitsky. Yeah. Um, you know, that's the one. That direct north move to there is the one that seals the fate of the Ukrainian army in the east. That's right. That's the one that just goes boof that's it game over you've you, you've lost your bridges you've lost your withdrawal route but so all, all i'm adding to that is i entirely agree with what you're saying because if it goes one way it goes up towards the two it goes the other way it goes to crop crop or whatever it's called yeah. very good with these words um my my issue is while all the attention is focused there if if you get an an, an operation moving towards Lutsk. The threat then is he's coming into contact with um, NATO. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and then we're in a funny area because if he if he was to come along that line towards Lviv, you've got refugees mm -hmm. trying to escape. Um, you've got NATO for NATO paramilitaries coming in. I presume you call them that. These volunteers and what have you. Um, you've got supply columns coming in. It, uh, that's a very that suddenly becomes a very dangerous area, doesn't it? It does. If I was putting my, but do I need to do that and cloud the issue when I can effectively win Ukraine without clouding the issues? You know, if I do that thrust up from the south and apply the pressure from Sumi Kharkiv. Luhansk directions. So if we if we have these three heavy armored thrusts as we're talking, um, in essence the war is won. So I win it by maneuver. Um, does does Kiev go into siege? What do we what do we see then? Um, I, I if he went for Lutsk and Lviv, I wouldn't see the logic. Does that win him the war? Does that but again, I'm I'm speaking in a way as a manoeuvre theory, as a manoeuvre purist. I'm not looking for revenge. I'm looking to win the war. You know, if he's looking for revenge, of there's some hate here. There's you know, I've heard some people saying 
There's some Russians, not saying all, but there is a belief that the Ukrainians are traitors. That's right. You know, is that a cultural belief? Is that part of what's driving um, Putin? What are we dealing with here? Are we dealing with, you know, in other parlance, is this total war or limited war? Has he got a limited war objective to achieve something? Or is this total war, I want to annihilate Ukraine? I'm, I'm going to go, you know, I'm, I'm going to go with almost total war. And the reason why I say that is we have, we have this sort of, we have, we have the use of the caliber system. We have, and, and, and Phil's sort of, sort of said this in, in, in tweets about this sudden appearance of an awful lot of trucks. Is it to literally remove um, the culture yeah. of the Ukraine um, in, in the areas in which the Russians so far hold? Then you've got the propaganda war that is being currently run by the Russians. And there, there is this, there are a lot of parallels with propaganda run um, 80 years ago with another regime where there is this dehumanization of um, not combatants but the nation uh, and, and they're using the term rats increasingly when referring to the Ukrainians mm-hmm. um, so all did of these see, did you see in Ghana's thread yesterday about the crusade and uh, the religious element in this conflict yeah, I, I I noticed that, and, and again, and that's what is the and, and then he's he's, he's um, Kirill, oh, uh, the 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 leader of of Russia, of uh, Moscow, Kirill, um, the head of the Orthodox Church. Yes, he has been re- hasn't he? He's been pushing for the, almost the taking back. Well, no, who no, he hasn't been. He's been honest. Take back the Baltic states, Finland, Sweden and bring them back into the sphere of influence of Orthodox Russia. And again, going back to the the, the cathedral they built a few years ago for the um, the Russian military, that huge building um, just south of Moscow. It's an enormous thing. We, 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 the, there are so many lines crossing, aren't there? You know, we, we, from, so he is, are we looking at, as Ian said, and, and again, as you reminded me, also as a religious crusade? I mean, I saw that there was something about the, the, almost the crucible of the Orthodox system was in Kiev. And that, you know, the Russian Orthodox is now seeing Kiev as some sort of traitor to the religious order. Yeah. You know, is that being propagated? You know, when we, when we start creating religious crusades, then things get bloody. Yeah. You know, um, um, yeah. that's not a good place to, for things to go. Because then you are trying to engage an emotional, motivational system that there's a, there's treason. You know, we're into heresy, aren't we? We're, you know, it's a short step into some pretty terrible situations that the world has been in before when we start talking about heretics. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, some of us perhaps don't have the language for holy war. No, no. And and I think it's because we, you know, culturally the British British society is becoming increasingly secular um, and where you know if you look on the other you know, on the flip side of the coin 
um, Russian Orthodoxy. You know, they they use the they use the Orthodoxy as an excuse to go into Aleppo. They said they were defending the Antios, their Antiochian brothers within the Antiochian Orthodox Church. Um, so this isn't a new tack, but it's very interesting to see that um, the primate, isn't it? Primate Kirill has really upped the ante on this. I looked at Ian's thread and I was speechless, really. Because um, I don't know. It's, you, we're back to that Marxian concept, the opium of the people, religion and blah. And, I, and, and you know, how, how religion played in Russia. Um, I'd always assumed after what the Bolsheviks and the Soviets had done, that it had kind of didn't have a very big part to play. I hadn't realized that since 1992, it was a, a leading authority and institution within Russian society. I knew it was about, I just didn't realize it was quite the political force of it is. In fact, as I started to look at some of the work, I hadn't realized that Putin seems to back the faith. Putin will back any faith that helps him achieve his goal. You know, well, then we're back to the total war thing, aren't we? Yeah. And I, 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 one of the things that I was reflecting on, you know, just sort of stepping back a little, you know, there's been, we, we, we've always talked a lot, or we always used to talk about, about Russian Maskarovka, that, you know, the art of hiding, the art of concealment, but at a strategic level. And you could say that Putin has mounted the most monumental. When did he come to power? Was it night? 1999. Okay, so 1999, he's mounted a 23-year Maskarovka to put the West to sleep, to corrupt the West political system, to disenfranchise Europe, separate America. You know, now we, uh, without wishing to slander people, (laughs) um, you know, political. Shall we just call it political influence? He's done an amazing job, you know, and at a strategic Maskarovka level, I go, well played, sir, really well played. And then this happens and it's like, now, did he play this hand as well as he could have done? Has he done? Well, time will tell. But it's like he's been mounting this whole deception plan to say, hey, Russia's friendly. We want to work with you. We want to sell you our gas and oil and be part of Europe. And he had no intention of doing so whatsoever. Oh, no. I mean, now, if you look at what's happening in Germany, um, Gerhard Schroeder, who I particularly disliked when I first arrived in Germany, is now under armed guard because of his relationship with Putin and how he sold the country down the river. Yeah. Um, But now the hatred for Merkel has suddenly, I mean, I I remember when she first came to power, women would say to me, I had to vote for her because we wanted a woman in government. Uh, And and I remember somebody saying to me, well, she'll be like Margaret Thatcher. And I said, no, she won't. Um, She was trained under the DDR system. Um, She'll do everything to keep Germany from being uh, a potentially powerful state. 
Oh, no, 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 no. You're thinking old language and all the rest of it. And I, I'm still convinced after all those years of her training within the DDR, I just don't think it ever goes. How, how does it go away? Yeah. It's like, it's like me saying, well, I did university. I, I did a degree at university and all of that is now wasted. It, it's totally irrelevant that I did all that work in my first 21 years. The entire the entirety of my life has gone. She not only had that, but she then became a politician within the DDR system. Yeah. So her politics, her ideas, her, her chemistry, everything was geared up to the DDR time. And now suddenly she's she's gone. But, you know, you're, the, the game that Putin played, I mean, I think the blinder in all of this is what would have happened if Trump would have won the election? Well, yes. Mm, I'd, yeah, that, that's, that's, so, terrifying. that's a terrifying thought. It, it, here's my, it, it's just a little one, and I'm not going to go too far because I know I'll get sued. But I think, he bought, I think he basically bought all the governments of NATO, one way or another, and he also bought the presidents of the United States. And that's, that is what's really the issue here. Because suddenly everybody's woken up and, and Putin has literally undermined national security, NATO security and Western security. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. I don't think he'd have had to have walked. I think if the, the, the interesting twist is if, if um, Trump had won the election, he wouldn't have had to have walked into Ukraine. No, I think he'd have got it. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, well, you know, we, we're way beyond what, 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 which route he takes out north and out of Kurov now, you know, but. <laughs> but I think that explains the reactions to what Putin has done. Yeah. Because um, I think everybody was expecting Trump to be in power. There would be a transfer of ownership of the Ukraine into Russian life. And everybody would have said nothing. The oligarchs would still be in there wherever they would be. And life yeah. had gone on as normal. Um, suddenly, um, it all changed. And, and in that change, it, it's, it's very interesting how noisy those who before were, you know, saying nothing about Putin, suddenly now, oh, Putin's this, and we should have gone back to, gone after him in 2014. And you say, really? Johnson, why, why are you saying that now? Why? Well, yes. Yeah. Why? Uh, absolutely. And and then you discover how much money some of these people have got off Putin and, and the backhanders and what have you. And you think, my God. Yes. No, I, I, I. Yes, I. Where do you go from? Where do you go with all of this? I mean, you know, where's where's the word treason in all of this? Around about the time you close the Russian file and won't release it. Well, yeah. It, it's a very interesting one, that one. And, and, and the whole um, way in which Putin has played the West is... It, but it's it, the it, way it, how they recycled money. So you've got... You've got Trump's money coming back into Europe, having received it from elsewhere, and it comes into Europe. 
and it's in the form of publishing houses pushing all kinds of right-wing um, nonsense in journalism and publications and you and and you just see how the links all the financial links between the various financial organizations it is staggering i mean it, it, if putin was behind that it's got to have been the biggest conspiracy the world has ever seen i mean greed comes into this doesn't it and we had apparently the total free market economy russia was no longer an enemy you know how much of this was not uh, not saying active assistance but just well we're just doing business it's yeah. just business it, it was almost as it was almost as if the, you know the, this unfettered capitalism um yeah. was the savior of the cold war had beaten the Engels, Marx, you know, all of all of all of this sort of extreme. Um, yeah, but capitalism appeared to be without ideology, but actually, for somebody like Putin, uh, it has huge ideological. Oh yeah. Status. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting. I mean, here, here's a thought: How much money is he going to promise? How many goods? How much plunder is he promising all these troops if they have victory in the Ukraine? Indeed, you know he's not—he's not shown that he's averse to, to any technique, is he? I mean, if every one of them is going to come out semi-millionaires, they're going to have their own estates, their own land. They can have whatever they want. These soldiers are going to be very, very committed to winning this war. It is an interesting. Um, not an interesting is not the word. It's a conundrum. And this is further compounded. I mean, since we've been on air, it's just literally flagged up. I don't know if uh, you've noticed it. The rhetoric is now he's now he's now sort of focusing the his rhetoric um, against Poland. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, um, and and the, he he's got you know he's saying the quote Poland is Europe's hyena. So you 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 can almost see where the intention is lies. He he wants you. He wants Ukraine. He's not going to settle for half measures. Well, sadly, I don't. I didn't really have much doubt. Um, yeah. I think uh, where I've stood on all of this, this guy is um, from the very outset. He to me, it's always seemed that he's gone in like a bully, throwing heavyweight and bombardment around the place. Okay, the the, the reconnaissance didn't work in Kiev. Um, although I'm slightly of the opinion that he's holding on to the nose of the Ukrainian army while he's kicking the rear all over the place. Just, just one, just, just a, th a thought, you know, Belarusians, what are they doing? Well, this is the fear I have about a force coming down towards Lutsk. You know, are yeah. they keeping their powder dry? I mean, phew. You see this? This is. I'm sorry, we've been talking for an hour. Just throw that one in there. You know what? What is going on in Belarus? What? What? What is going on internally? Are they? You know, we we've got a situation where the Baltics, the in, in the Arctic, the northern flank of NATO, they, they've just started, haven't they? They're, this exercise, thirty-five thousand NATO troops. Um, but hasn't he got some kind of naval exercise going on somewhere with a whole load of troops somewhere in the north? 
I know he, he had he had some stuff not long ago just off the south west coast of Ireland. Um, and, uh, there, there was a, a marine battle group, I believe. I could be wrong. Um, they they wanted to test missiles. Um, off they, the they south did. coast of Ireland, testing. Yeah, missiles. yeah, and and the Irish understand went. No, you're not going to do that because that's actually part of our territory. You know, not territorial waters. It's part of our fishing area. And the last thing we want is a trawler being taken out by. He's prodding everywhere, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. everywhere. Seeing where you give in. Seeing at which point will you bounce back at the prod? Yeah, yeah. but that's I think the point that Tobias Elwood has been making. You know, we didn't in historically, you stand up to the bully, even if they do have nuclear weapons. Yeah. You know, you have to stand up to the bully or else they'll just keep salami slicing. And this is that this is that whole idea. Oh, so you didn't flinch when I did that. OK. So let's see what happens when I do this. And it's interesting, you know, this this ever-present use of nuclear missiles, you know, weaponry, special weaponry. It is it it does terrify people, and he's fully aware of that. And I and I think this goes from Elitnage being, you know, a dangerous thing, and people don't fully understand that he doesn't actually press a, a literal button. That there are great many sort of processes to go through before the launch keys are turned. And that is a saving grace in a lot of respects because of the, the way that most systems work. But like he's say, done something else, isn't he? He's compromised the whole of the Cuban Missile Crisis detente because he's turned around and said, well, you might have nearly won that one because basically we got the missiles out of Cuba and you got your missiles out of Turkey. But now we're showing you how to play the missile game, the, the nuclear game, properly. So he said, who's chicken? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, Which you're running you... at each other in your cars. Remember that with uh, Niall Ferguson? You run your cars at each other until you play chicken and see who's going to swerve. And so far, NATO swerved um, yep. and Biden swerved. My interest here, though, is NATO holding back simply because they can no longer rely on Biden. Because Biden has already said he's not going to commit troops, therefore, is he going to commit nuclear missiles? Probably not. So you've you've actually got a, a main ally who's suddenly become completely unreliable. Well, this this is this is of course the challenge of being a defence alliance, and you know there's all sort of good ramifications, right? We have predefined borders and Article is it Article Five? Article Five. We're not, you know, we if one foot steps over a NATO country's border, it's all for one and one for all. And so far, everyone has stuck with that. What we've got is this grey area. Now, Poland's a completely different issue. But we've got to show him and be very, very clear. There is that line. Where is the line? Where is the line where we will not countenance another step? Okay, here's a scenario. Yeah. Belarus missiles fired like the other day towards Lutsk and Lviv. Yeah. What happens if one misfires and hits Poland? Is that nuclear war? 
It's not nuclear war. It's certain, it's perhaps a conventional strike back. You know, the, and then you know, he says, oh, that was an accident. You fired at me deliberately. So here's one back in your face. OK, good point. But what recently happened in India? Yeah. There was a very similar sort of situation, wasn't there? The Indians launched. I don't know how you accidentally launch a missile. They managed it. Um, by the counts, it wasn't. He wasn't the, the he wasn't big. Armed. He, he, he wasn't. He wasn't huge. I think it was a. I think it was more an NLRS type thing. By all accounts, I could be so so wrong, but he was dealt with diplomatically quite quickly. Is, does, that give, does that give us possible hope that any that, that we that, that diplomacy still has grounds in this situation? Of of course, and I mean, I, I'm saying you give them one back. I'm, I'm sort of taking that as there's no apology. There's no. Active, there's no, oh, no, that's fair enough. I, th I think, yes, yeah. yeah, no, yeah, no, I'm with you. you know, on that one, there's, yeah. there's a difference between one and the salvo. Well, take it to the next station. Um, an airplane flies over the border and it's lost. Now, that's recently happened, though, hasn't it? Yeah, and yeah, that, that, that's, that's, an, that's an escort and you're landed. But is it a test? It might be. I think because it, I think because it was done with a drone, it was a test, wasn't it? See, that's the point. And all the while, if you're testing and you're not getting a very strong response, what's it telling? I, I, no, it, this this goes back to a discussion that was oft had in the um, officers, various officers' messes. Um, captain to major promotion study sessions, whatever. What constitutes the hostile act? And this was always the decision. You know, if you go, you know, what constitutes a hostile act for those reasons, you know, that's going to initiate military action that says, no, no more. Now you, you've crossed, you've literally crossed the line. Now, I think you're one, Ben. Yes, that I think that India-Pakistan incident, it was actually a drone that was not armed. Right, OK. I think. So, yes, it crash-landed. There was no weaponry on it. Diplomatically sorted out, you know, whatever. And some, I, I suspect some very hasty phone calls. Um, you know, we, the thing is, we're dealing with someone here. We don't know. I, I going more to you, towards your field, Ben. I'd be very interested to see how quick. You know, to, for me, the, the, we start to see something on the NATO side when uh, various airfields around you start filling up <laughs> um, with with aircraft coming across from the other side of the pond. Yeah, it it is, and again, you know, if you look at the application of the air power, the Americans are doing a lot of movement out of Fairford with the B fifty two H's at the moment. Um, there was one did a, there was a couple went over Romania. Yeah, uh, and, and and this isn't a secret. The Amer the the USAF released a couple of lovely photographs. Um, We've been getting these... AWACS coming in, but they always come in at night, so. Because yeah, the Oceans just up the road and the NATO AWACS base is there. I've been there, it's quite interesting. 
um, but they always bring them in at night. Um, it's a security thing going back to the time all, Muslim, all Muslims had missile systems. Uh, apparently. So anyway, it flies over the house and I can hear it and I know it's cut. I mean, this is what gets me about NATO. It always goes past at five minutes past one in the morning. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's like the Germans, isn't it? Eh? The, Brit <laughs> the British, the British go stop for tea at five o'clock and, and the Germans kick off in the morning and at five o'clock say, that's it now. End of day. Right time. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, are we talking about the RAF here? Don't ask them to fly on a Wednesday because it spoils both weekends. <laughs> I'm not going to take this one lying down, lads. I was going to say ruined sports afternoon. <laughs> Squadron bars open, boys. I mean, and again, this this sort of then leads us into a, another little. It's almost like a rabbit hole upon a rabbit hole. This then leads us into this is something I alluded to earlier: the whole whole sort of world of air power doctrine. And I have to mention this before, you know, where where are NATO nations at with it? Because the RAF, the the last um, edition of their air power doctrine was in 1999 so much has happened i mean within three years that was almost out of date so it's going to be interesting to see what happens now around doctrine and use of air power um especially in the event of i mean we've had drones for years don't, don't get me wrong but i think the versatility of drones and the universality of them hasn't been yet fully appreciated by greater minds than i i don't think um and that's going to affect how things are done. And it's interesting, the Armenian Azerbaijan set to a couple of, uh, was it about 18 months ago, proved that drones were now, they'd literally sort of come of age yeah. for, for smaller nations. And, and the Ukrainians have proved that that's the case. Um, so it, it could be interesting. I mean, are we at the point now where, yes, we could have a lot of air power, the, the large assets, the F-15s, F-35s, Eurofighters, and all the rest of it, and the Rafaels mounting up. Or are people now starting to think, you know what, it's cheaper to get a couple of UAV platforms um, as opposed to one fixed asset aircraft? Or, or with, that, with that stage, and then are we going to see this rearmament and, 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 and sort of use of the UAV, which can be operated from virtually anywhere? Um, I mean, you're almost certainly right. But where we stand right now and coming back to our if the line is crossed, NATO has three and a half thousand combat aircraft. Russia has 1700. There's going to be one hell of a fast air war. Oh, and, and the best and, and the other thing, of course, is we got the support of Sweden, fourth largest air force in the world. A bit of yeah. silence. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, what was it? What was it, the line I saw this morning? When did the Finns join? When did the, it was either when did the Swedish join NATO or when did the Finns join NATO? And it was five minutes after the other does. <laughs> because they're so yeah. much, obviously, that, that you know, the, the, land borders and everything. It, it's unsustainable the, for one of them not to be. And again, if you look at the, sort of the Swedes and the, the, the Swedes and the Swedes, sorry, the Swedes and the Finns, um, they do operate very well together, is there? and then they have done in the past on UN missions. There is a, that history of interoperability. Um, if 
and then within NATO ask, itself. Let me just ask them what yeah. I've been continually asking. What happens if the Russians have got tanks on the Polish border and they have a concentrated anti-aircraft screen running all along from the Baltic right the way down? How does that affect um, air superiority? Well, then you're into massive deception plans and you're into having a aerial iron curtain, aren't you, on both sides because it plays out both ways. Right. I mean, the other thing is, this, it's at this point that the guys from Teeny Weeny Airways and their Apaches and they're living because, you know, the, the Russians have shown, um, not brilliantly, but, you know, so they, they've not moved on from the Soviet do air power doctrine of using helicopter and, and small um, ground attack aircraft like the Frog Fort um, as the extension of their air power. That's where all their, their focus has been. And they've done it very well, actually. Um, and they've, they've done it reasonably, you know, they, they're reasonably good. At it. You know, we can't, can't take that away. We don't know what the losses are from the Ukrainians. Uh, understandably, they've been very coy about that because it's it's not in their interest to share losses conversely the russians have no real idea what those losses are um but they have got the aircraft and they have been using them and and the same with nato i think it will be a case of as neil very rightly said setting out the pieces dispersing the assets and letting the letting the the, the ladies and gentlemen in their rotary aircraft make take that first initial strike well, it, um, it, yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, it, we're into scenarios here and I'm frightened by the potential accuracy. Um, God, who was the novelist who wrote? Um, oh, sorry. Um, the, the title of the book's now gone from my mind um, about an invasion of the West. Clancy. Um, Yes, Clancy, Mr. Clancy. You know, we're almost in Tom Clancy novel area here, aren't we? Yeah, we yeah. are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, we, we've we, we've got multiple things going on across the world. We've got China having a, you know, where, where does Taiwan fit into all of this? We've got Russia manipulating world politics. We've just come out of a COVID epidemic. Well, have we? Check, question mark. Um Western forces haven't trained properly for two years because of COVID. <laughs> um, you know, and then suddenly out comes Russia. You know, you've just made a really good point. COVID and the training cycle. Yeah. I mean, actually, how prepped at the moment are any of the ground forces of NATO to mobilise and operate together okay so i so just to bring a lighter note to this for a moment and I've, i i think i told this story on one of the previous ones you know interoperability between nato allies you know right so i, I when i did my euro nato training engineer center course and the ntech course and we all turned up for a the cocktail party and we couldn't even agree what you wear to a cocktail party you know the brits are in uh, the brits are in lounge suits and regimental tie the americans are in jeans and t-shirts the dutch were in whatever had fallen out of the cupboard and to echo a previous point the germans were in uniform you know and we couldn't eat and it was like the perfect point was made on day on the evening one of this course 
interoperability, we can't even agree what to wear to a cocktail party. <laughs> yeah. And I say, I say it lightly, but we're two years out of a training cycle where nothing has happened, probably. Now, I, I, I say nothing. We've got the battle groups up. Clearly, the battle groups are being worked up up in the uh, um, Baltic. But how's how's Sakur and Desakur feeling right now about their about their force generation? Hmm. See, I don't get any comfort as a you know as a simple civilian being told that a thousand British soldiers are moving into the Baltic. No. I, you know, a thousand British soldiers is you know to me that's a regiment. And they call it a battle group and all the rest of it, but basically a regiment. And it, and and then the other day there was listening to Ben and our friend Matt talking about the size of the Royal Air Force, and you know we had 400 aircraft, but that came then down to 125 combat aircraft. And and you're just thinking, a hundred, a thousand soldiers, 125 aircraft. How, how long does that last in any kind of conflict? Well, look at the, um, there was some quite rivaled comment on Twitter that the apparent Russian losses after one week would have meant that the British armed forces were no longer a fighting force. <laughs> I saw that. You know, yeah. that, you know, if I'm, it almost, I almost get a heart attack and pains in my chest saying it. We've got, is it 120 Challenger now in service? Two regiments. We've got two regiments. Yeah. We because used to have that in just in 4th Armoured Brigade. And there were three brigades <coughs> of that configuration just in Germany. You know, that was three of the brigade, three of the nine brigades in Germany. The other six brigades had a single tank regiment with... 43 tanks so we we had two type 57 regiments in a single brigade and there were three brigades like that so you had sorry excuse my math 342 challenger in three armor brigades you know now that's a bit pokey that that start now now you're starting to talk about mass and you know that but you know third armored division had four tank regiments and now two, four, seven, um, six or seven infantry armored in, infantry battalions in Warrior. Oh. So, plus all the artillery, plus all the engineer support, plus all the in, in integral logistics that you need for an armored division. And we had three of those. Now, I'm not saying they could all move at once because of spares. But it was only 19, well, 1991, we put a two brigade armoured division into Iraq. And that was two armoured heavy brigades. So it was 7th Armoured Brigade and 4th Armoured Brigade. So there was four regiments of tanks out there. I'm fairly certain if, I, if, I'm got, if I've got my um, all back correct. But it's, you know, 
we we have scaled down to such a level and i return to my observation of tobias elwood holding johnson to account last october in the defense select committee uh hearing and elwood saying you know um are you really saying that we we don't need tanks we don't need aircraft and johnson saying well i think the days of armored warfare in europe have gone oh you see what yeah. johnson said was a logical conclusion to a period of 20 years yeah military specialists telling us we only need a counterinsurgency army well yeah and and, and all of that was just I mean, it was crazy because you just knew that that was unsustainable. I I think we're at this point now, aren't we, where we, well, I've had discussions with a few friends who are still serving, um, looking at the current situation and and manpower and everything else. And the the universal opinion seems to be we went too far from the get-go. You know, options for change frontline first shouldn't have happened. Because you know, look, look what happened within three years of those big cuts. We were involved in the Balkans, and yeah. and it has been thus ever since. You know, the British military have been permanently engaged in one way or another, somewhere in the world, whilst having resources slashed by subsessive, you know, governments because the focus was on Russia. And we're coming back to this circle, aren't we? Now, where where we've been sort of almost sort of, uh, you can't blame people. Um, the the British haven't been a great. You know, as you said earlier, Neil, you know, the, the British aren't particularly militaristic. Um, you just look at how quickly we, we demob people after the Second World War, you know, mm. America, you know we, we, we did it very quickly. Um, and so when we see the opportunity politically or, or socially to, to cut the armed forces, we do tend to do it. But I think in the 30 years we've done it, we've really cut back way too far. And, and I know that it, it was a concern to the, the Americans a decade ago. Yeah. Um, so we, we have got ourselves into this into this mess um, purely because the politicians didn't want to believe the people on the ground and, and the thinkers and the, you know the actual sort of academics of of military politics and say we do need this force. Yeah, and, it, and it's, it, it's been blindingly obvious to quite a few of us in, in the old discussion. We needed we, what we've needed is one armored division is a single properly equipped armoured division, a medium-wheeled a medium-wheeled, heavy-wheeled division, a la the type of kit we were deploying in Afghanistan, perhaps with a modern equivalent of Saladin, please, Um, and a light division potentially based on the parachute regiment, and dare I say it, the Royal Marines being part of that division. Oh, oh, I've just committed heresy there. And another brigade. So you have an airborne brigade, a Marines brigade, and you have an air mobile brigade, which is all part of a a light division. Now you have a fairly strong suite, one, and you are retaining knowledge in those areas of operation, which means you don't get surprised. (laughs) And, you know, loss of knowledge, loss of technique loss you know that that loss of expertise is an incredibly difficult thing to get back once you've given it away and i and i think that's a, sorry what were you sorry i don't try there no I, I i think you're absolutely you know spot on i was um again speaking with somebody not long ago 
what we've lost is going to take 20 years to get back because they've already started to say, well, you know, what is it we've lost? We've lost this. How is it? To, and, and, you know, there, there is this expectation we can just regain it suddenly. And it's going no. to take 20 years. And it's and we, we are at this very dangerous point where what we are doing is what we are doing too little, too late, or is it too much and just, un, un, you know, not never going to happen? Well, who, who know, we, ha- we haven't actually heard a decision about what we're going to do yet, have we? <laughs> no. <laughs> You know, and, and that, don't don't let me get. Go on, sorry. We're back on to speed of decision making. What was it? You you were saying? You know, you asked me. No, what, what do you think of the decision making? I think I mo- I pulled a face, didn't I earlier? <laughs> you, you know, I, I, there isn't any decision making happening. Have we seen? Any, oh God, sorry, we're going really off topic here. Have we actually seen an ability to to absorb information? come up with a plan and execute a plan from this government in any emergency that we faced in the last five, six years yet? No. No. There's lots of, we get lots of words, lots of air and no action. And I'm sorry, I know I've drifted completely off, but this is what I suspect we'll get in this field as well. Something has happened to British civil-military relations and what what greatly concerns me is whether it's come as a consequence of all this Putin intervention in (coughs) society or or whether it's it's naivete. I I mean, the naivety of of, uh, soldiers and academics believing that, you know, insurgency is winnable in in strange places. Uh, The fact that, you know, soldiers were being sent out with not the right equipment to fight in in strange places faraway places i mean that while we were in a faraway place all of that chaos was acceptable now we're in europe the whole game has changed and 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 you know i don't think british people can continue with really the equivalent of neville chamberlain government if the the if the vote hadn't gone the other way and ended up with Churchill, it's like you've got the it's like you've got the the jokers who want to appease and not fight and avoid and put up barriers and prevent this that and everything else and be little Englanders. When the real politicians who say this, these these guys who are challenging Johnson, are being marginalised. I mean. Yeah. That's, that's true. Yeah. That's deep, deep cynical madness. And actually, you know, just to sort of go back to what you were saying, Neil, this is actually still on topic, isn't it? Because this all sort of rotates back almost. We've always come full circle to the Russian way of war, which is instability. Yeah. And I, and I think that's, that's where we're at now. Um, I'm mindful that <clears throat> we, we've been having this discussion now for some time. Um, and I, I think this is worthy of further discussion, most definitely, um, as things develop. And we've covered a huge amount of ground that, you know, as Neil said, I don't think any 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 of the three of us really thought we'd discuss. And I think this has been exceptionally useful. Um, and in terms of the adjutant's lounge, I, th- I think it just shows that this is some of the things that we, we can also provide you. Um, Phil, is there anything is, is there anything you'd like to add before we sort of knock it on the head for the session? Well, I think the Russian way of war, if if we're 
if we're going to use that term, you know, in its kind of general doctrine sense, is not the the Red Army of old and Soviet. It, it's something that's emerged since 1999. And we all assumed that the, the kind of wars that the West had been fighting um, in the past were the, were, the, were the only ways that we were going to fight war. This guy's come along and said, no, there's another way. And he's taken all the negative side of modern war since the Twin Towers, not only turned it against now Ukraine, and Grozny and Aleppo and these other places, but also magnified it to a huge extent. I mean, we are living, we are seeing stuff that I don't think even in our wildest dreams we would have thought of 10 years ago. Yeah. Just don't think it would have been, we just couldn't even imagine it. Thank you. Neil? No, I think the next, I mean, what happens in the next two months is going to impact the geopolitical world for the next 20 years, even 30 years. It's going to be enormous. Um, and literally the next two months, because this 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 reaches some form of conclusion, even just in Ukraine, I would have said in the next two to three months. And and then we see where we are and the decisions that are then taken as a result of that will impact us for years and years to come. And across the whole of, and I, I say just across Western Europe, across Eastern Europe, the Mediterranean, all of that area that Russia sees as, or has seen historically as its backyard. So what's happening in all the stands at the moment? along the southern border I, I, I you know th this throws everything up in the air it throws everything up in the air as to how we've seen the world yes um and this is something we needs to be you know needs to be discussed um thank you both so much uh for coming along today and sort of having an honest chat uh, an honest discourse about this actually um listeners thanks ever so much for joining us uh, appreciate this is not uh, this is quite a heavy subject topic we get that but you have to be so you have to talk about these things or else we don't learn about them we don't understand them um i'd like to thank both my guests today um dr philip blood uh, and neil pointer their twitter handles will be in the descriptor um please give both a follow from me thank you ever so much for joining us um wherever you are in the world and i know we got quite we, we're picking up followers in ukraine um i know we got a few from our last plot i hope you and your families are safe and well as well as can be expected um take care wherever you are